Good morning, everyone. I'm, when I say I'm glad to be here, you can know that I really mean it. <laughs> the alternative places I've been are far less attractive than being in church. So I am really glad to be here. And uh, last night, oh, the health challenge uh, she's referring to is I had prostate cancer. So they took out my prostate, and uh, it's been a challenging recovery. But last night was the first night since I've been home that I've actually slept. I haven't slept. I mean, I sit there, and I, so I just feel so happy. Just to be able to sleep uh, is a blessing. So we're going to talk this morning about the relevance of the church and it came to me as a subject because it's been so relevant in my life, particularly at the moment when you are weakest. And so this is why I want to talk about the relevance of the church. You have an outline, and you notice the outline is very detailed, or at least it will be after you take notes. So right now it's an empty page. But the uh, first note, and all of them start to change the same, the the relevance of the church to knowing God. That's my first title, the division. The relevance of the church to knowing God. And the second one is the relevance of the church to personal identity and fulfillment. The relevance of the church to personal identity and fulfillment. The next one is the relevance of the church to community. And the last one, the relevance of the church to the fulfillment of God's plan of redemption. I'll go over those again. I said them rather quickly. Join me in prayer, won't you? Father, we thank you that you have created the church to be a home for us, to be a place where we hear the gospel preached over and over until it is threaded into our lives like a fine gold thread that goes through fabric. May the gospel pervade every thought, every dream, every motive, every wish that we have. May we see today the vision of the church as you have ordained it to be. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. There's a modern myth today about the church that goes this way. I don't need the local church to grow spiritually or as a means of knowing God. Especially true among younger people, but it's true all over the world. It's true now in Western Europe. It also says that, in fact, the church may stand in the way of my spiritual growth or may hinder my ability to know God. And so the purpose of today's message is to address that belief head on. So in order to deal with the subject of the church, we have to first look at what the church means to God. And so the first passage, you'll see a number of passages in your uh, bulletin. And I'm just going to take a quick quote from Ephesians 5, verse 42, that says that when Paul is describing the church, he says, this mystery about the church, this mystery is profound. 
And I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. And he's saying that the relationship between a husband and wife is really a mystery that points to the reality, vitality, and purpose of the church. Out of all the possible human relationships, God chooses marriage to reveal the mystery about his church. Now, if you're single, or if you've been married and divorced, you may right now react and tune out and say, well, this doesn't relate to me. Uh, I'm not into marriage. Marriage has hurt me. I don't want you to just keep your mind open because this is God using marriage in order to teach us. You don't have to be married to learn this lesson. I think being married can reveal some things about it that single people don't realize. But I also believe that being single, you may get a deeper view of marriage that married people don't realize. So this is a subject that will reach out to all married and single, divorced or married. Just be open to it. So why choose this relationship? First, let's look at some basic truths from the Bible about the church. And, and I'm going to give you my, my underlying operative truth. Everything I say stems from this truth. The Bible is the inerrant, perfect word of God in its original inscriptions. It is God's revelation of himself and his plan for the world. That plan is inevitable and will come to pass in every detail. And God reveals that in his word. Now, that's where I'm operating from. So if you don't believe that the Bible is the word of God, that's okay. And if you reject it or question it, that's okay. But I want you to understand my approach so that if you want to sit there and attack it, I want you to attack it based on my ability to analyze the text and then compare it with your own worldview. All right, so the birth, life, and death of Jesus Christ is part of this biblical truth. He now dwells at the right hand of the Father in heaven, governing the entire universe. We know that because the Bible teaches us that. Now, the church uh, uh, consists of every person who believes what God gave him to believe, from Adam and Eve to the last man or woman who receives the salvation of Jesus Christ before Jesus' bodily return to earth to judge the world. So that's basically saying every believer. Now, you may ask, well, what about all the people who existed before Jesus came and all of the people who, like us, who have existed after Jesus left the earth physically? And Jesus has said that he is the way, the life, and the truth, and no one comes to the Father but by me. He is the door or the access to Father. And I want you to imagine that this door has always existed. It existed because he says that the Lamb of God was slain from the foundation of the world. So the door, the access to God existed before the world existed. Now that access is Jesus. And God says, in order to get through this door, my son, you must believe what I tell you to believe. And so for uh, Adam and Eve, they were supposed to believe not to eat the fruit. For Abraham, he was to believe when God came to him at 90 years old, when his wife is 80, he says, look, you're going to have sex with your wife later on and she's going to have a baby. But you're not old enough. Wait 10 more years. So when he was 99 and Sarah was 89, he had sex with her and she conceived and had a son. And it said, Abraham believed God. And God imputed righteousness to him for that belief. Now, the imputation is a legal act. 
it doesn't mean that Abraham was righteous in his character. It meant that God declared him righteous before him. And God was able to declare him righteous before him because that door that gave access to God existed from the foundations of the world. And that door, it's Jesus who was crucified at a specific place and time on earth. But that power, the power of his life, death, and resurrection is the reality of that door. So when Abraham believed God that having sex with an 89-year-old wife would produce a healthy son, God said, you believe me? I'm going to declare you righteous. You have access to me through this door, and that door is Jesus Christ. Now, he may not have had the revelation of Jesus Christ that you and I have today based on the full revelation through Scripture, but he believed what God told him to believe. Now, God's church is invisible. Now, that seems inconsistent because, or, or it seems kind of mystical, sort of like the sci-fi channel, channel, and I'm an addict. But when I say invisible, I mean that we cannot see it in its entirety. Only God can. Uh, furthermore, his church can only be perceived spiritually. It consists only of Jesus at the head and all those throughout all time who gain access to the Father by believing Jesus. Okay? That door was available to Adam and Eve as much as it is available to us today and to our great-grandchildren tomorrow. You and I cannot declare with 100% accuracy who is or who is not part of this divine, organic, spiritual creation called the church. For example, you may step out of the church today, this physical building, and see a guy walk by or drive by on a motorcycle. It has a Hell's Angel logo on the back, and he sees you come out of the church and he gives you the middle finger. You don't know, and he doesn't know, that God has marked him to be saved. You may be the person he uses to save him, but you may not be. But let me tell you, it will be as much a surprise to that man as to you when he is saved. So God created the church, now listen to this, as a gift to his son, a bride in the image of his perfect and holy son. The great purpose of the church is to show forth the majesty and glory of the bridegroom who is Jesus Christ. Okay, so how is the church relevant to knowing God? That was all introduction. Let me give you at least five reasons. Number one, the church is the means God has chosen to reveal himself to the world. It is the church which reveals Jesus Christ and his salvation to the world. That is why Jesus prayed this in John 17. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. That is the church. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything you have given me is from you, for I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. The church is the repository of the great knowledge that Jesus Christ is the living Son of God who came to earth for our salvation, who lived, was crucified for us, rose from the grave on the third day, and ascended into heaven from where he now reigns over the entire universe. 
And the church is a repository of that great truth. And its mission is to share that truth with every single person it can and to show how that truth, when taken and received, as the Lord says, will change us. That is why Jesus commended Peter when he identified Jesus as the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said, you know, Peter, you are right, and I'm going to call you the rock, and I'm going to build my church on the same understanding. My church will be built on those who understand that the Father has sent me, that I am one with the Father, that if you have seen me, you have seen the Father, and that my death is for you. That is why Jesus said, unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. So that's the first reason. The church reveals the significance of Jesus Christ, that he is fully God and fully man. Second reason the church is relevant to, um, to us is that the church is the vehicle throughout, I mean, through whom God has chosen to tell people about Jesus and his salvation. Now, this is all part of knowing God, the relevance of the church to knowing God. The church is to go out in the highways and byways to tell people about Jesus and then teach them the deeper truths of salvation. That's our goal. And that's what the church is to do. And when we do that, you know God. Third, you cannot know God however hard you may seek him if you reject Jesus. So Jesus said this, Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it will be enough for us. And Jesus said to him, how long have I been with you, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say then, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. But the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe in me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me or else believe on account of the works themselves. So you want to know God? The church is the place where you come to realize that the fullness of God is revealed in the deity of his son, Jesus Christ. You want to seek God? You have to seek Jesus who is the doorway, the window by which we access God. It may be, I don't know, it may be that when we are in heaven, we will never see the Father. And Jesus said, that's okay, because if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. And when we look at the book of Revelation, at the position of Jesus Christ, he is in the center of the universe, surrounded by whom? First his bride. And then ten thousands upon ten thousands of angels, all stretching out to the glory of the universe, all because of Jesus Christ. You want to know God, you have to go to a church where they teach you the humanity and the deity of Jesus Christ. Fourth reason to knowing God and the relevance of the church in that task. God has sovereignly chosen how he will reveal himself. Now let me give you an analogy. And if you don't mind, Sunil, I'm going to use you in my sermon. Okay, so a guy comes up to Sunil and says, you know, I really, I really like you. I want to get to know you better. And Sunil says, well, okay, glad. I, I, I'm coming home from a convention of cancer scientists on Friday. Come over and join me and my family for dinner. 
And the guy says, well, you know, I think all science is phony. And that cancer stuff is a bunch of mumbo jumbo. Only fools would spend their time doing cancer research. I, I can't really join you on Friday. And, and I, I don't really want to be with your family. I don't really like Koreans. <laughs> now, let me ask you. What chance will that man ever have to know Sunil? Let me give you another analogy. A girl, a guy says to a girl, I really like you. And I want to get to really know you and what makes you tick. And the girl says, wow, okay. I, I love plays. Let's meet at the Old Globe and then have dinner. And the guy says, I hate plays. Let's go to a ball game. I'll meet you at Padre Stadium. What chance is he going to get to know that girl better? Like the church is the one where you come in and you have all these preconceived notions about who God is and how you will encounter him. I want my God to be this way. I want my God to say these things. I want God to treat me in this particular way. And the church is where you learn that God is God. This is how God has revealed himself in his word. Let's go study this together so that you and I might know God. And I don't know about you, but how many times has your preconceived notion of who God is or how he works been jarred by the reality of who God is and how he works? For me, it is a humbling thing. Now, I grew up in a, in a home where the father was very judgmental. If I got a C, he said, well, get a B. That's not good enough. If I got B, he said, get an A. That's not good enough. And when I got all A's, he said, you should get A pluses. And so my view of God was affected by my relationship with my father. This stuff about love and stuff, a God who loved, my thought was that God would let you go along and succeed until a certain point and then pull the rug out from underneath you. It took me a long time in church to understand that my perception of God was not being influenced by the Bible, but by my relationship with my father. So some of you may have a thought about God that is affected by something in your past about which you are not even conscious. And you come to church because then you encounter God as he is. And the spirit of God is committed to reveal who Jesus is and how he works in our lives. That when we know him, we may know the father. Finally, on this task, the church is the steward, the preserver and proclaimer of the word of God. This is where you're going to find it. You're not going to find it in schools. You're not going to find it in universities. You can't go into a scientific lab and learn about it. If you want to learn about the word of God, where is the word of God most studied, most revered, most loved, and most applied? It's in the church. Now, we've looked at how the relevance of the church to knowing God. I want to shift a little bit now to the relevance of the church to personal identity and fulfillment. Personal identity and fulfillment. Now, in every culture, there are always two questions that are relevant to the people. Why was I born, and what is my purpose in life? I don't care what culture you go to, you can ask those two questions and the people will be immediately engaged because everybody wants to know. And here's a simple truth. You cannot know yourself or your purpose in life if you do not know God and put yourself in his hands. That's like saying, a flute wants to know, what's my purpose? You, you go to the flute maker. 
So analogy. Now, um, let me give you uh, two college courses that you can sign up for. English 501, The Life and Work of Shakespeare, taught by Dr. John Smarts, four PhDs in Shakespearean literature, world-renowned scholar. Entry fee, $100 for the course. But there's also English 502, and it's also the life and work of Shakespeare, taught by William Shakespeare. Entrance free. <laughs> Which one are you going to choose? So here, you go, you come into church, and the church is going to reveal to you who you are by revealing your place in God's creation and who God is. If you want to know yourself fully and truly, you must know the God who created you and who has a plan for your life. Now, part of this, part of this should be obvious because spiritual growth, spiritual identity is full of paradoxes for us. Full of paradoxes. The Christian church is where the paradoxes are revealed and taught. Let me give you some examples. You want to know yourself? You have to lose yourself. You want to gain the world? You must give up everything. You want to give? I mean, you want to receive? You must give. You want to be whole? Well, you must be broken. You want to live? You must die. All of that is counterintuitive. You do not wake up one morning with the revelation, you know, in order to live, I have to die. Um, in order to be happy, I have to stop thinking about myself and think about others. It's counterintuitive. The thought is that if I want to know myself, I must get deeper into myself and more introspective. That's one extreme. And the other extreme is if I want to know myself, I must never think about myself. Only see myself as I'm reflected in the eyes of others. And both are wrong. The Bible says, you want to know yourself? Let see yourself as God sees you. This is so significant. This is one of the reasons Paul writes the letter of the Ephesians. So, your identity, your identity, who you are, may be that you were once a prostitute. You are unemployed. You've been in prison. You're divorced. You come from a home where your mother or your father was highly critical. You, you were never good enough. You were once strung out on drugs. And, and that sense, or, or when you were in school, you were heavy, and they called you fatso all the time. Or you were in school and you were too thin, and they called you skinny all the time. And the last thing you want to do is go back to your high school reunion so when they, you walk in, they say, oh, there's fatso again, or there's pencil legs again. You know, so you want to know yourself, then you have to know yourself as God sees you, because God sees you in two ways at the same time. He sees you exactly as you are right now in every detail. And he sees you right now as you are seated in heaven beside Jesus Christ, reigning over the entire universe. And you and I tend to see ourselves with all this baggage from the past. 
And so somebody who's had a rough background feels self-conscious around somebody who's had an esteemed background like Sunil. Well, I'm not worthy, I'm not good enough. And God says, no, whoa, whoa, whoa. your value is not based on that. Your value is based on me. I am your value. Your identity is that you are a risen child of God to whom I have invested and poured my entire life into you. Stand up. You can speak before kings if I want you to. So he takes an 80-year-old fugitive murderer called Moses and tells him, I want you to go to speak in front of the, the king of the world at this time, Pharaoh. And Moses' first reaction was, I'm not going. I'm not going. I'm, I'm stupid. I can't speak. And God says, well, I will be with your mouth. And Moses said, well, who am I going to tell? Who will I say sent me? And God, God didn't say, well, don't say that you're a great man, redeemed by God, powerful. He said, well, tell them that I sent you. That's all they need to know. Tell them that I am that I am. That's your message, Moses. And so Moses' final argument, well, okay, all this is good, but I have a plan. Send my brother Aaron. He speaks better. And God says, Moses, go. And Moses, now the whole time he's walking to Egypt, is thinking, I'm a fugitive, I'm a murderer, I'm a failure as a Jew, I blew God's plan. Why does he pick me? I don't want to do this. The next thing you know, he's standing in front of the Jews who are asking the same thing. Who the heck are you? And he says, well, look, here's a stick. Bam, turn. He said, okay, now go talk to Pharaoh. And the first said, who are you? And Moses, he said, it's not important who I am. God has sent me. And that's the point. It's not that you are nobody. It's that you are somebody in the power of Christ who indwells you and has given you purpose and meaning. So that you, who were once an addict or a thief or a prisoner, can stand before the president and speak. You can stand before anybody and speak. But then let's also look at the other way. The guy who grew up with that silver spoon in his or her mouth, you've known nothing but success, and you think you are God's gift to the world. And, and so people should naturally bow down to you because you've got a string of PhDs, you're very athletic, and you're very good looking. All right? And so all of a sudden the Bible says to you, wait a minute, everything you have is from God. There's nothing you have that commends yourself, yourself to me. You are merely a steward of what I have given you, and I can take it away like that. Humble yourself before me. But God, you, you need me, you need me to, to build your kingdom. I, I don't need you to do anything. I choose to use you to build my kingdom, but I don't need you to build my kingdom. And so God brings up to a rightful place in Christ the, the person who has been so self-denigrated that his identity is warped, but he brings down from his sinful pride the person who thinks he's so great and has great accomplishment, and you realize that I am totally dependent upon God. It was so beneficial for me to be in a hospital. It, it was so beneficial to somebody who can walk into a room and, and everybody says, all rise, and you and they stand up and nobody can be seated until I sit down. But you know, that hospital tells me I'm totally dependent upon God. And my goal, my goal in the hospital was to be able to get out of the bed and walk to the bathroom with a four-post walker and go, to, and go to the toilet. That was my goal. My goal wasn't saving the world. 
It wasn't preaching to thousands. It's God, help me today be able to swing my legs out of bed, get on the four-post walker, and go to the toilet that's just about 10 feet away. And when it happened, I said, oh, thank you, God. Thank you. I was able, I was able to do it. I mean, and it, it showed me the reality of all of us. We are utterly dependent upon God for all things. You cannot possibly know yourself in full unless you know your dependence upon God and that you have been elevated by Christ, by his power, to reign with him in the heavenlies. You are somebody, not because Reverend Jesse Jackson said it, you are somebody because Jesus has saved you and lifted you up out of whatever circumstance you have been in. So the church is relevant to, to knowing yourself and being fulfilled because all the truths about who we are are, not, are so counterintuitive. To tell somebody who's a rich man to know himself is you've got to be humble. There was a rich man who came to a Bible study and he said, you know, I want to do so-and-so so that I can give money, uh, give money to God. And the teacher said, God doesn't need your money. If that's why you're here, you might as well leave. And this was a shock to the rich man. I mean, everybody wanted his money. How could God not? He said, well, God owns the universe. If God has given you money, you do with it what you want. But don't think that you're doing a favor to God because you're giving money. That's his money. So we looked at how the church is relevant to um, knowing God and relevant to identity and a sense of fulfillment, but it's also relevant to community. Now, some religions or philosophies magnify the individual at the expense of community. It's all about self-fulfillment and the community be damned. That's sort of the Ayn Rand philosophy. There are others of religions and philosophies that magnify the community at the expense of the individual. Well, we, we might have to do this even if he had to run you over, but it's good, for the, it's good for the community. Biblical Christianity is the only religion that magnifies the individual and the community. Neither is sacrificed for the other, and each both honors and enriches the other. God did not save us to be lone rangers, nor did he save us to be enslaved conformists. God saves us to be part of this eternal organic entity called the church, which will bear the image and likeness of his perfect son. That living entity is known by several names in the Bible. It's called the bride of Christ, it's called the church, and it's called the body of Christ. The church is where the sacraments are performed. And this is all part of community. Baptism and the Lord's Supper are two of our key, key sacraments. And you come to church as a community where we experience a spiritual baptism together. And you know, they always ask, church, do you receive so-and-so when they become a member? Are you going to help them grow in Christ? And they say to the person receiving the baptism or joining the church, do you want to submit yourself to the authority of the church? Do you want to have the church grow in you? And there's this reciprocal relationship that says, we need you and I need you. The church is, uh, worship in the church is almost always corporate. Watching the Super Bowl alone versus watching it with friends who love you 
who are all rooting for the same team and are in your house together. Completely different experience, would you agree? I submit to you that the second experience is the greater of the two. To be with a group of people who love you and you're all rooting for the same team, and if that team wins and you're jumping up and down, men jumping up and down, hugging each other like eight-year-old girls, because we just got a first down. And we always say the same thing, we won! Now also, God has wired us to be part of a community where we are known and matter. This is true. God has wired us so that we want to be part of a community. It doesn't, I don't care who you are. There are some rare personalities, but those rare personalities go off and live by themselves because they feel they have been hurt by community. But by and large, everybody wants community. Now they're called street gangs, sororities, social clubs. Whether for good reasons or bad, we are constantly seeking community. Even anarchists gets together to plan anarchy. I mean, you, you can't help but want that. However, there is a problem with every human community. There is a problem with every human community. And the problem is simple. We are in it. Can you think of a community that would not be better if there were simply no people in it? And therefore, the church is as likely to confine us, sometimes as liberate us. It is as likely to blind us as to make us see. But, but we recognize that. But the purpose of the church is to free and to open the eyes of the blind, to enable the, the lame to walk and the dead to live again. Now, it is true for every community except one, which is God's church. And why is God's church different? Every human group has the problem that humans are in it and polluted, except the church. Now, listen to this. I know your first reaction is, yeah. Why is God's church different? You and I are not the ones building it. God is building his church. Praise the Lord for that. Because let me tell you, there were some people, the church would have nothing but Republicans in it. Some, some, some churches would have nothing but black people in it. Some churches would have nothing but Koreans in it. Some churches would have nothing but people who earn over $250,000 a year if it was left to the builders. And some churches would have nothing but vegetarians, while the other would have nothing but people who like to eat ribeye. And they would constantly be at it, but God is building his church. He is picking everybody who enters his church. He is building it. And is the church, does the church have hypocrites? Of course, of course. But you and I are, are very poor at identifying who they are. In contrast, God perfectly identifies the hypocrites. Knowing that, I often go on my knees before God and ask him to have mercy on me. The Bible is full of those wonderful parables like the parable of the fish 
or the one that's more normal, the, uh, the wheat and the tares. The wheat represents those who true, truly believe God and the, and the tares are the phonies. And as they grow up, tares look like wheat until they're mature, then you can separate them at the point of harvest. But God said in the parable, don't you go in and pull out the tares because you'll pull up some good wheat with it. God says at the end of time, my angels will come and do the harvest and they will take out all the tares and burn them and they will preserve every single blade of wheat. So you and I, our worry is not that hypocrites may be in the church. They are. Our issue is Lord God Almighty, let me not be one of them. God have mercy on me. Reveal to me if I am a tear masquerading as wheat. God, I want to be wheat. I'm depending upon you. Not me, I'm depending upon you to make me wheat. And let me tell you, there's some mighty good wheat in the kingdom of God that look like tares. When we get to heaven, we'll be very surprised at the people who are there and very surprised at the people who are not there. But none of this will take God by surprise. Another vital point about the relevance of the church to community. The church is relevant because it teaches us to, about our spiritual gifts. If you are a believer, whether you have asked for them or not, God has given you some combination of spiritual gifts, and those gifts are not given for the benefit of the recipient. The only reason you are given spiritual gifts is to minister to the body of Christ. That's why they're given. You are simply a steward of those gifts. Another reason for the vitality of the church and the reason we want to know it in relationship to community is that is where people... People come to minister. I really experienced this firsthand when I was in Scripps Green Hospital and the East Village Community Group as a group came to visit me in the hospital. Now, mind you, part of it is really very embarrassing because, as I said last week, I'm sitting in a gown that would be illegal to wear in public. I would be arrested for indecent exposure. I've got a catheter in my body and a bag here that collects my bodily waste. I'm, I'm tired, I'm weak, I look a mess. And they come in and really uplift my heart. I, I can't explain how happy I was by their visit. It was an overwhelming expression of love. And it was totally unexpected. Nobody said, they're coming to visit me. And you'd be surprised, you, you, you wouldn't think this, but there are very few visitors in hospitals. Very few. And to have the community group come as a group to minister to me was profound. See, that is part of community. The, the, the church says, God says to the church, I want you to come together. I want you to build each other up. I want you to encourage one another. I want you to provoke one another to do good works. And then I want you to go out and find people. Find people. 
Go to the bad neighborhood. Go to the, the, the despised people. Go out. Go out. Build this community. Build this community. And God is constantly pushing us to speak to pe people we would rather avoid. To invest our lives in, in the lives of people we, don't, we would otherwise avoid. They're not like us. They're different. And God says, I, I, I know. I, I just want you to go. And you trust me to do what must be done. And so here my community group comes to me in my, one of my most. Humble states. And lifts me up. And after they left, I went to sleep that night. And God gave me a great revelation of himself, which I will share one day, but not today. But all because of that visit, Annie Lamb's visit from uh, Mid-City. What a profound impact. So we've looked at the relevance of the church to knowing God, the relevance of the church to personal identity and fulfillment, the relevance of the church to building and being part of community. And I'm going to close with the relevance of the church to the fulfillment of God's plan. And this brings us to the final question. What is God's plan for the church? And how can he possibly make it perfect if Bill McCurin is part of it? Well, Adam and Eve prefigured Christ and his bride, the church. In Genesis 2.18, it reads, The Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. That means appropriate, a perfect fit. And Eve was taken from Adam. And that means that she had Adam's substance, his essence, a reflection of Adam and yet different. Eve could not exist without Adam and likewise the church could not exist without Jesus. Adam was put to sleep for his bride. Jesus was put to death for his bride. Eve was taken from Adam's side, and when Jesus hung on the cross, a spear pierced his side, proving his death, and out gushed both blood, which is a symbol in the Bible for life, and water, which is a symbol in the Bible for the Spirit of God. The Bible says that a man, in Genesis, a man must leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife. But the church must cleave to Jesus in order to know the Father. The glory God intended for Adam and Eve was ruined by Adam and Eve, but restored and made infinitely more glorious by the last Adam, Jesus Christ. The first Adam and Eve were to name the animals, rule the earth, but the last Adam and his bride rule the universe. It's a new heaven. It's a new earth. The first Adam and Eve sinned because they exercised their will to do what they wanted to do. The last Adam died on the cross 
and said from the cross to Jackie and to Michael and to Walt, I know your will is just like Adam and just like Eve. But on this cross, I'm going to die. But I will be born again. And when I am resurrected, my spirit will come. And Walt, he's going to give you a new heart. Jackie, he's going to put a new spirit within you. Michael, he's going to give you new vision. And we will take our free will. And what Adam and Eve did is they took their free will and they exercised it to oppose God. Believers take their free will and they say, God, here, take it. Take it. That song that we sang, I Surrender. What that means and what's different from the last Adam is Jesus said, I came to do the Father's will. And I do only those things that please him. And that Jesus says to us, I am putting in you my heart, my mind, and my will. And so instead of you, well, and we see this in part now. We're not fully there, but the good news is that Christ is the one who does the work. So the Sports Illustrated Swimsuit Edition comes, and I throw it away. I tear it up, and I throw it away immediately because I've I've given a a new will. So, So I'm partly there. But it doesn't mean that I don't lust. You understand? But, but it, he has given me a desire for something greater. He, he, he has made me know that no temporary thrill can satisfy or replace his full love in my heart. It's not because I am anybody or that I am a good man, but that God has put his spirit in me and he is changing us daily, daily, daily into his image and likeness until one day we will waken. And it says, we will see him as he is, for we, what? Shall be like him. And so whatever struggle you may be going through today, whatever inconsistency, moral inconsistency in your life today, where you have failed and you say, I'm a lousy Christian and I'm a hypocrite, know that because of Jesus Christ, We can always go to the Father and repent, knowing that when we repent through the blood of Jesus Christ, the Father has already committed to forgive us, not only to forgive us, to restore us and continue to do do in us the good work that he started. Well, the rule of man leads to pollution, endangered species, global warming, But when Christ returns, he will create a new heaven and a new earth where he rules with his bride. Adam and Eve were created to become great. God said, I want you to become great. And instead they sinned and brought calamity on the world. But God says to us in Ephesians, God placed all things under the feet of Jesus Christ and appointed him to be head over everything for the church which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. So let's look back, and I'm closing with this. I want you to know that so you won't throw anything up here. 
Let's look back at the question that started the sermon. Why did God use marriage as an illustration of Christ's relationship with the church? Let me suggest three reasons. First, it is a universal illustration. Every culture can relate to it. Second, marriage as an ideal expresses our desire for harmony, unity, love, and acceptance. Now think about it. The reason people are cynical, bitter, or disillusioned about marriage is precisely because they have a picture in their minds and hearts of what marriage should be. Where does that come from? Third, marriage involves commitment and sex. Don't worry, I'm not going to refer to Sports Illustrated. Therefore, marriage involves the deepest level of intimacy with and surrender to another person. That's why we rightly feel so betrayed and hurt when a spouse commits adultery. That is why when we go into marriage, we say this line, and forsaking all others, I give myself to you, and forsaking all others. Even in cultures where marriages are arranged, there is still the same hope for love, acceptance, intimacy, and commitment. That's why when a husband and wife make love, it is almost impossible not to verbally express deep levels of love and commitment. It is almost an involuntary action. You are swept away with so many incredible emotions, joy, gratitude, pleasure, excitement, surrender, renewed commitment. So God uses the marriage illustration to give us just a faint picture of the deep level of intimacy, love, acceptance, and commitment that God will create between his son and his bride. And because the father loves the son so deeply, he wants a bride worthy of his son. I find that totally perplexing. How could God include me in that brideship when he wants something worthy of his son? I am so unworthy. Look at us all all sinners, yet God will work in us individually and corporately to make us a body fit for his holy and perfect son. The father will present us to Jesus as a bride without spot, without wrinkle, without blemish, having the son's heart and the son's spirit within us. That is the mystery Paul was talking about. God is taking me, Jackie, Sunil, Jim, Dana, Beatrice, Ben, all of us. And he is right now in the process of making us the church, the perfect and holy bride for his son. And the father has promised to do this, and he keeps all his promises. And I, Paul says, and I am sure of this. That he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the end of the day of Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. Let's pray. Lord God, just thank you that in your loving kindness and mercy, you created the church. You build it up. You protect it. And you perfect it. And in the right time, you will bring the church as the perfect bride 
before your son. Amen.